I'm Joel Parker. I'm Gretchen Wettstein. And I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 11th, 2018. Coming up, we talk with planetary scientist Dr. Sarah Hurst about Titan, planetary atmospheres, robotic helicopter missions to other worlds, and more. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Mitochondria, the microscopic organelles that are the energy power plants in our cells, carry their own DNA. In nearly all mammals, this mitochondrial genome is inherited exclusively from the mother. Although dads pass on a small percentage of mitochondria in species as diverse as mussels and sheep, this phenomenon has not been shown in humans. In fact, it's been a central dogma of human genetics that only mothers pass on mitochondria to their children. A new study published last week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences disputes this dogma. A multidisciplinary team from the U.S. and China sequenced mitochondrial DNA from 17 people in three unrelated families. The scientists selected these individuals because they had unusual symptoms that did not follow a typical pattern of inherited diseases. In all of these subjects, the researchers discovered that they shared some mitochondrial DNA sequences with their fathers. This paternal transmission is probably rare in humans, but the new findings suggest more of us may be carrying a mitochondrial legacy from our dads than we realized. Coffee lovers rejoice! A new study from Rutgers University identified a fatty compound in coffee that, in combination with caffeine, slows the progression of Parkinson's disease. Under the direction of lead author Dr. Morale Meradian, researchers discovered that a coffee compound called EHT works together with caffeine to reduce the accumulation of harmful proteins in the brain, which is a hallmark of Parkinson's disease. The results suggest that an EHT-caffeine combo may be effective for preventing Parkinson's disease. This is significant as current treatments only address disease symptoms rather than slowing disease progression. While those of you listening may be tempted to reach for a second cup of coffee, it's important to remember that mice aren't people and that too much caffeine consumption can cause more harm than good. More research still needs to be done to determine the amount of EHT and caffeine that could benefit humans. Nonetheless, this study is a promising first step towards helping the more than one million people with Parkinson's disease in the United States. It's not every day you can send a message to a spacecraft in the distant stars, but this is your chance. NASA's New Horizons spacecraft is poised to conduct the farthest planetary flyby ever, an encounter with a Kuiper Belt object nicknamed Ultima Thule, on January 1st, 2019. NASA's New Horizons spacecraft has traveled 13 years to reach the heart of the Kuiper Belt, but you can get there in a matter of hours. NASA and the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory in Maryland have set up a website 
where you can give your name and a greeting that will be sent to New Horizons as it speeds past Ultima Thule four billion miles from home. Traveling at light speed, your message will reach the spacecraft about six hours after leaving the ground station on Earth. You need to sign up by December 21st, and you can find the website at pluto.jhuapl.edu. That's pluto.jhuapl.edu. And click on the button that says, Send Your Greeting to Ultima Thule. You will also receive a personalized certificate commemorating your interplanetary message. If you were standing on the surface of a windy alien world, what would it sound like? It might sound something like this. In fact, that is actually the sound of wind on Mars. The InSight mission that landed on Mars two weeks ago carries a seismometer instrument that will be placed on the surface of Mars to measure Mars quakes to study the interior of the red planet. However, while sitting on the spacecraft, the seismometer recorded the vibrations of the Martian wind buffeting the large solar panel on the lander. The frequency of the vibrations detected by the seismometer is within the range of human hearing but at a very low pitch. So the pitch of this recording we were playing has been raised two octaves to make it easier to hear. Eventually, mission operations engineers will command the lander to use a robotic arm to move the seismometer to the ground where it will measure vibrations from deep inside Mars. Enjoy this first time of hearing sounds from the surface of another planet as you imagine feeling the 10 to 15 mile per hour winds and gazing out at the rocky red horizon. And for the third in our trio of space mission news items, The OSIRIS-REx mission only just recently arrived at its target, the asteroid Bennu, on December 3rd, but it has already made a discovery. Water. Measurements by the visible and infrared spectrometer, as well as the thermal emission spectrometer, reveal the presence of molecules that contain oxygen and hydrogen atoms bonded together, known as hydroxyls. The mission scientists suspect that these hydroxyl groups exist globally across the asteroid in water-bearing clay minerals, meaning that at some point, Bennu's rocky material interacted with water. While Bennu itself is too small to have ever hosted liquid water, the finding does indicate that liquid water was present at some time on Bennu's parent body, a much larger asteroid. The spacecraft currently is performing a detailed survey of the asteroid, passing over Bennu's North Pole, Equator, and South Pole at ranges as close as 4.4 miles to get high-resolution images and to better understand, determine the asteroid's mass. OSIRIS-REx is NASA's first asteroid sample return mission. Tune in to How on Earth in two weeks on Christmas morning to hear more about the mission when we talk with one of the mission scientists.
are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. The solar system has so many different worlds that come in all shapes and sizes and histories from boiling hot Mercury and Venus to icy Pluto in the Kuiper Belt. Such extreme alien worlds are exciting, but perhaps, perhaps the places that catch our imaginations are the ones that are most familiar, perhaps with the hope of humans one day visiting there and even living there. So we think of places that have atmospheres and have or once had liquid water. But then there are those places that have atmospheres and other things, but live in what you might call the uncanny valley between familiar and alien. And perhaps Saturn's moon Titan fits into that category with an atmosphere, but not one you would want to breathe, and lakes, but not ones you would want to swim in. Our guest today is someone who has ventured to Titan, philosophically speaking, and explored that alien but familiar place and hopes one day to breathe that atmosphere and fly around in it, at least vicariously. Dr. Sarah Hurst is an assistant professor in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Johns Hopkins University, where she is also a member of the Hopkins Extreme Materials Institute. She is also an adjunct astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute. Welcome to How on Earth, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I, I did this titanic introduction, as it were. You work on Titan. In a manner of speaking. I do. Um, I, lo I loved your description of the uncanny valley because I think that's maybe one of the best descriptions I've ever actually heard of Titan. That <laughs> it looks so much like home, you kind of uh, have to remind yourself that it's not sometimes. And, and that's actually one of the things that's really both kind of scientifically exciting about it, but also just kind of emotionally uh, exciting about it as well. So what are the familiar aspects of Titan? Well, you mentioned some of them. So it has a pretty thick atmosphere. So the surface pressure is one and a half times the surface pressure at sea level on Earth, although that's actually a bit higher than it is here in Boulder. <laughs> um, and then uh, there are lakes and seas, but they're made out of methane instead of water. Um, there's rivers. There's extensive dune fields, but they're not made out of sand. They're made out of organic material. And so most of the processes that we see shape the landscape here on Earth, we see happening on Titan as well. It's just the materials are super different. We know this how? Uh, we know this because we've been there, which is uh, we have. which is surprising to a lot of people, actually. When I see people say, okay, when are we going to land on Titan? I'm like, oh my gosh, we did that already. <laughs> um, so there was a mission called Cassini-Huygens, which ended uh, last year. 
and it was in the Saturn system uh, for 13 years. Uh, Cassini was an orbiter, Huygens was a probe, so Cassini explored the entire system, the, the spectacular rings, Saturn, um, the other icy satellites like Enceladus, um, and the Huygens probe was actually a, a Titan probe, and so it descended through Titan's atmosphere and landed on the surface. So we actually have quite a bit of data about Titan, which has been really exciting. Before we talk a little more about Huygens, can we see the surface from the ground from telescopes, or could uh, Cassini see the surface very well? No. So Titan's atmosphere, as I mentioned, is quite thick, um, but actually the, the main thing that gets in the way is Titan is, um, I always like to describe it as L.A. on like the worst day you could possibly imagine, or I guess here the, the better uh, analogy might be the Denver brown cloud. We get the, these haze particles made from chemistry in the atmosphere that prevent us from being able to see the surface. And so when the Voyager spacecraft flew through the Saturn system uh, in the early 80s, they returned images of Titan, but all we saw was this fuzzy orange ball. We couldn't actually see the surface. So I like to joke there Mysterious. could have been Titanians jumping up and down and <laughs> waving at Voyager, stop, slow down, we have things to tell you. And we wouldn't have known because we couldn't see anything. And so it was really... Um, the instruments carried by Cassini, um, some of which were designed to be able to, to actually see through the atmosphere, and then also the Huygens probe, which returned our first images from um, the surface that finally allowed us to start to understand what an actually Earth-like world Titan really is. And so what did Huygens tell us? Uh, so we think that Huygens landed in a dry wash, so probably uh, analogous to the desert southwest. So we think it rains these really massive storms, but very infrequent. And so most of the time where Huygens landed it's dry. So like Arizona, like Arizona or New Mexico, the Area 51 of Titan. <laughs> well, we always, I mean, and this might just be a be a bias of, you know, kind of recognizing things that are familiar to you, but actually the, the cameras carried by uh, the Huygens probe were built right to my PhD at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Um, and so, we, you know, sometimes I think, well, we think we see, we see the desert southwest in these images because <laughs> that's the familiar territory for us. Yeah, it's, it's that familiar side of the uncanny valley yeah, absolutely in fact i thought when i when i first saw the images i was just starting out as a planetary scientist and i thought that the pictures looked like mars mm. um and was kind of disappointed honestly uh it turns out that a lot of people on the mission didn't actually at first recognize that the that the pictures were from the Huygens probe. They thought it was just some kind of screensaver that was Mars. <laughs> and somebody actually had to tell them, no, no, those are the pictures of Titan, um, which I feel like was confusing to everyone involved. I wasn't there, but I assume it was. So so the probe landed, but it was also, did it sample the atmosphere as it went down? Right. So because we didn't know what the surface was like, we couldn't send a lander or um, a rover or a boat or anything like that because we didn't know what it would land on. And so that's why the probe was a probe. It was really meant to study the atmosphere, it wasn't promised it would survive on the surface. And so it measured um, the composition of the atmosphere. It did a lot of studies of how light moves through the atmosphere to help us understand chemistry and temperature and things like that. And so it was really meant more to, to understand the atmosphere. And then fingers crossed it would survive on the surface, which it actually did for, we don't know how long it survived. We know it survived for at least 90 minutes. Um, that was how long it survived before uh, it could no longer see Cassini to, to talk to it anymore. Um, so it may have just sat there for a while being like, <laughs> hello, anybody there? Uh, also, because it wasn't mobile, it just sat there taking the same picture over and over and over again and sending it back to the <laughs> Spacecraft. I've seen a lot of Facebook posts <laughs> like that. Yeah. Know, same meal over and over yeah, and over. No, uh, certainly. Although uh, <laughs> Facebook wasn't uh, 
Facebook had actually just started, I guess, when mm-hmm. the Huygens probe landed on Titan. I don't think they're connected. No, though. I don't think so either. So there are other bodies in our solar system and even around other stars that may have atmospheres. Is there anything about studying Titan that can inform us about other planet, moon, bodies, atmospheres. Yeah, so one of the things that's really great about Titan at this point is just that we have a lot of data. And so we had had a bunch of telescope measurements going back to to the discovery of the atmosphere in 1944. And so we've looked at it with every telescope you can imagine, the Hubble Space Telescope, all the ground-based telescopes. So we had that information. But what we now also have is the information of having actually sent the probe there to do the kinds of measurements that you can't necessarily do from a telescope. That lets us try to start to understand how atmospheric processes work. And it also kind of um, can serve sometimes as a cautionary tale to say, okay, you saw this from the telescopes and and this is what you thought, and you went there and you were wrong. Um, And so it's a a good reminder um, for thinking about studying exoplanet atmospheres, for example, that there are a lot of things you can figure out from, from telescope observations, but there's also a lot of things that you can't figure out unless you actually go to the place. Need to go there sometimes. You just gotta feel it. Yeah. (laughs) Like that wind on Mars. Mm -hmm. Other than telescopes and actually going there, you do laboratory work. Some people may not know astronomers, planetary scientists can study their topic in a lab. And that's something that you also do. It's true. So it's funny because as a planetary scientist, people assume that our only tool are telescopes. And so when I tell people that I work in Baltimore, almost always the first question is, are there telescopes in Baltimore? And then that, you know, depending on how there much... probably are. I mean, there are. There's, there's you know, they're, they're certainly around. Um, they're, they're not doing a, a ton of science, to be honest, because it's actually not a great place for a telescope. But, um, you know, depending on how much time I want to spend explaining, you know, planetary scientists don't always use telescopes. But we do a lot of lab work. And, and what we do in my lab is we actually simulate these atmospheres. I started out by working on simulating Titan's atmosphere in the lab. But we can do, at this point, basically all of the atmospheres in the solar system system we're capable of simulating, and we can do a broad range of exoplanet atmospheres. And so we use those experiments to test some of the ideas that we get from our telescope observations or from our spacecraft, or sometimes we need to actually do testing before we send spacecraft somewhere. And so um, lab experiments can be useful for that type of work too. So we've so far done in my lab uh, Titan, we do Pluto, we've been running Venus experiments, Um, We did a Triton experiment recently, and we've been doing a lot of exoplanet work. So the entire solar system in your lab. Yes, yes. To throw out some jargon here, there's some material that I think originally came from discussions of Titan called Tholins. Mm -hmm. So... Can you explain what those are, where the name came from? (laughs) Yeah. So the work that we do really started out by work that Carl Sagan and uh, his longtime collaborator, Bishankare, were doing in Carl Sagan's lab at Cornell. I think a lot of people don't really realize they know Carl Sagan from his his science communication and from Cosmos and all of these yeah exactly all of these wonderful things that he did. Um, but he was you know a proper planetary scientist and and one of his um, first and I think um, strongest scientific loves was Titan. And so they simulated Titan's atmosphere in his lab. And what they would do is they which is very similar to what we do now they take nitrogen and methane which are the two main gases in Titan's atmosphere and put energy into them. Maybe 
maybe it's photons like from the sun or maybe it's energetic electrons like lightning or something like that. And if you put that into the gases, you start new chemistry. And in a Titan gas mixture, you make a bunch of solid brown or orange gunk. gunk. Yeah, <laughs> the gunk that, is that like is the technical actual technical term. term I think most frequently <laughs> used. Um, when they started writing about these experiments, they realized that they didn't know what to call this gunk. Um, apparently, they didn't want to call it gunk, uh, and so they doesn't made a, have the cachet. It, I know it's not really like a Carl Sagan word, um, and so they made up a word. Um, which is stolen, which comes from a Greek word for muddy or unclear. And I wish, I never actually got to meet Carl Sagan, but I wish I had gotten the chance to ask him um, if that was a reference to the color Hmm. or the fact that at this point we've now spent 40 years trying to understand this material and still haven't sorted it out. And so maybe that was what the reference was to. (laughs) But we know now that there's material like this, um, not just in Titan's atmosphere, but also we learned from New Horizons that there's material like this on Pluto and maybe on Charon. And so these processes happen all over the solar system. We assume they happen all over the universe um, and all the different kinds of planets that we have. So to find out more about gunk, and Titan. It would be great to go there again. It would be great to go there again. Do you have any thoughts about what to do about that? I have a, I have a couple of thoughts. I have maybe I have maybe one very specific <laughs> thought which I think you're you're trying to get at. We're in the middle of a competition for a NASA spacecraft and there are two candidate spacecraft uh, who have survived the various processes to to whittle down um, the competition effectively. Um, And the two options are a comet sample return mission that would go to comet 67P, the comet that um, Rosetta and Philae went to. It would collect some samples and bring them back to Earth for study. The mission to Titan that you're referring to called Dragonfly, it's a dual quadcopter, uh, maybe better known as a drone. (laughs) Drones on Um, planets. (laughs) Which would go to Titan as its kind of one job, and then it would do kind of what the Mars rovers do, which is that it would go and it would be somewhere for a little while and sample things and do a bunch of science, and then once everyone kind of agreed, okay, we've gotten enough here, then instead of driving driving, which is very challenging on Titan, it would take advantage of Titan's low gravity and thick atmosphere, and it would just fly to the next location. So flying is easier than driving. Yeah, much easier. Um, actually, humans, if you ever find yourself on Titan, um, first of all, call me because I have some questions. Uh, but second <laughs> of all, if you were to attach some type of you know cardboard or wood or something, plywood or something to your arms, you could actually flap your makeshift wings and fly under your own power on Titan because of the low gravity and thick atmosphere. So it's really the best place um, in the solar system to fly and so we're excited about the possibility of actually taking advantage of that with a spacecraft tourist possibilities are (laughs) endless so what specifically would dragonfly want to look for so are kind of without giving away too many trade secrets because i know this is yeah i can't i can't i can't give away any i can't give away any trade secrets our i would say our biggest a kind of outstanding question, which is actually a class of questions left over from Cassini Huygens about Titan, is that we don't actually know very well what the surface is made out of. Because of Titan's atmosphere, it's actually quite hard to get composition measurements of the surface. So we heard earlier about how OSIRIS-REx has already found water on Bennu. It just kind of shows up, points an instrument at it, and there's the water. And for Titan, it, it's it's not that easy. The atmosphere makes it very hard. And so we, we see these lakes and streams, but we don't actually know what the methane is carved 
diving into. We don't know if the surface is water ice. We don't know if it's organic material. And so it's been really challenging to kind of figure out how these processes actually are working when we don't know what the materials are. And so we can't fully test our ideas, which are important for, you know, understanding dune formation and all of these things that we think we know how it works from Earth, but maybe we don't. Um, The other question that we have is we know that the atmosphere makes really complicated organic molecules, but we don't know what they are. And so this kind of ties into a lot of questions about the origin of life, the evolution of life, whether Titan does have life now or could have life at some point, um, whether or not the processes that happen in Titan's atmosphere today may have happened um, in the atmosphere of the early Earth um, before the origin of life or maybe during the evolution of life. And so we really want to get down to the surface and just do some really, really good composition measurements to figure out kind of the big picture composition that is what, you know, all of these planetary processes are operating on, but also, um, you know, really figure out are there amino acids on the surface, which are the building blocks of protein or nucleobases, which are the building blocks of DNA. Uh, We see caffeine in our experiments in the lab. And so maybe there's caffeine on the surface of Titan. (laughs) You don't have to bring your own. No, you don't have to bring your own. That's You'll be okay. There'll be, you know, coffee. Um, So uh, that's kind (laughs) of the the big picture of what we're trying to understand is these questions that we couldn't that we can't answer from orbit that we have to have a lander so i know the whole mission proposal process is a very long extended thing but when will you when will you when know? Will we know? <laughs> so the final kind of step right now is the concept study report, which is due this week. There's one more part of the process that will happen in March or April. And then right now, NASA has been saying that they're aiming probably for June or July for the selection announcement. And once the announcement is made, then everybody hits the ground running. So it's, you know, you go from a full stop to full speed um, <laughs> within just a couple of weeks to get going so that you can get that spacecraft to the launch pad. Well, good luck with that, and best of luck getting to Titan and studying it still in your lab. Thanks. And thank you very much for being on the show, Sarah. Thank you. That was planetary scientist Dr. Sarah Hurst from Johns Hopkins University talking about Saturn's moon Titan and doing astronomy in the lab and with drones. She can also be found on Twitter as Planet Doctor. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Gretchen Wettstein. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Zoe Keating. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Granditz. I'm Gretchen Wettstein. And I'm Joel Parker.